Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The stalls at the Epcot International Food and Wine Festival sound as enticing as ever. Canadian cheddar and bacon soup, Mongolian beef bao, lobster mac and cheese with boursin are all on offer once you're through the virtual queuing system. For kids, there's a scavenger hunt based on the characters from the Ratatouille movie. Orlando's Disney World is back open. But on the other side of the world, Disneyland Hong Kong closed again this week after a surge in cases. Hong Kong has reported just 1,500 cases since the pandemic began. Florida this week had over 15,000 new cases in a single day, more than New York ever reported when it was the epicentre of the outbreak in April. With 108 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how will America beat COVID-19? The United States is home to the world's most renowned disease-fighting agency, the CDC. When the coronavirus emerged, Americans might have expected its scientists to spearhead a national testing program to coordinate medical supplies and public health messages. That didn't happen. And America now faces a secondary surge of cases not seen anywhere else in the world. In this episode, we'll hear from the head of the CDC and find out whether the billions of dollars spent on vaccine research might reap a reward before Election Day. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the Washington correspondent. Charlotte, what's been the highlight of your week? I think hearing you pronounce boursin, which is not how other people at Disney World pronounce that, I think. How would you pronounce it? Well, I, of course, would pronounce it boursin. But um, in the line at the Epcot Center, I'm pretty sure that's not the usual way that your average American is ordering mac and cheese. It's just a suspicion. John Fasman, how are you doing? Your old friend, Roger Stone, was pardoned by the president this week. Possibly the least surprising presidential pardon since Ford pardoned Nixon in 74. And has he called me? Has he dropped me a note? Has he responded to my emails? He has not. Roger is a free man. When I was checking the date of President Ford's pardon of President Nixon, I noticed that Ford also gave a posthumous pardon to Robert E. Lee. Did you know that? That's fascinating. No, I did not know that. There was a time when being nice to Confederate generals was a vote winner. Now, no longer, it seems. John, for listeners who haven't heard you talk about him already, tell us a bit about your encounters with Roger Stone. I had lunch with him in Florida before he was indicted. 
He was funny and charming. He knew everything, and I mean everything, about Connecticut politics, which is fascinating. Connecticut is where I've been living. I know the state pretty well. And he was very elegantly dressed. And unlike some prominent Republicans, Roger Stone's even been wearing a mask. Yes, after his pardon, he showed up in front of his house wearing a free Roger Stone mask. Well, that will be the fashion item of 2020, no doubt. Okay, let's get into this week's podcast, which I'm afraid is going to be rather somber. Going to be looking at coronavirus and how America is doing. For this week's Economist, our policy correspondent, Idris Kaloun, has been looking into the surge of cases across the southern US. And when we last spoke to him about COVID, as the country had just passed the 100,000 deaths milestone, America appeared to be managing the epidemic about as well as Europe. You know, not brilliantly, but not that badly either. Idris told me that all of that has changed now. America and Europe looked like they were on broadly similar trajectories in terms of how many cases they'd experienced and how many deaths they'd experienced. And they both started to reopen their economies at roughly the same time. The difference in America was that there was still a relatively high level of cases, which suggests caution in, in reopening. And what's become clear is that over the last couple of weeks, governors were somewhat incautious in, in how quickly they opened. What we're seeing now is a secondary surge there's a debate of whether America got past the first wave at all. And now this is taking off in states largely in the South and the West, places like Florida, Georgia, and Arizona. Unfortunately, America looks a lot worse in terms of, of how many cases it has relative to Europe. Places that were the early hotbeds of COVID, places like Spain and Italy, are now gradually reopening, and they haven't seen the sort of wave or the secondary surge that America has. So it finds itself in a uniquely bad position, which imperils not only people and, and their livelihoods, uh, but you know the possibility that schools open, the possibility that the economic recovery that had just started fizzles out before it can really get going. Yeah, I mean, if you look back a few months ago, the governors, particularly of Republican states in the South, Florida, Texas, were sounding very bullish, weren't they? I mean, Greg Abbott talked of having corralled the coronavirus. But then they reopened their states, even though the case numbers were rising, which was really against the advice that certainly the CDC was giving, maybe not um, against the White House's advice. Why did they do that, do you think? I mean, it, on the face of it, it seems like a mad thing to do. At the time, the virus, in terms of its health consequences, was quite concentrated, right? It was centered around New York. It was centered around urban areas and Republican states, Republican you know, residents of those states weren't experiencing, by and large, the health effects. They weren't seeing people they knew who got sick. By contrast, the economic effects were much more widely spread, even though people in Texas might not know of anyone who had had the coronavirus or had died from it. They certainly knew lots of people who'd become unemployed as a result of it. Republican states legitimately had more of a reason to reopen than, than places like New York did. What is important is when you reopen to do so cautiously, right, to make sure that you're monitoring what's happening on the ground, to make sure that if you do see disturbing signs, that you claw back the reopening in a way that actually allows you to contain it. One thing that I think the last couple of months has also shown us is just how unpredictable the course of the virus is. People thought that Ron DeSantis had doomed Florida in March when he was delaying issuing a stay-at-home order. Florida eventually got a very large outbreak, but it happened now, not, you know, three months ago. You also see in California and Oregon, places that early on were praised as models of leadership are now dealing with secondary outbreaks on their own. And these are states that are run by Democratic governors who are 
presumably much more immune to pressure from the White House to reopen rapidly. One of the unique features of, of COVID-19 in America relative to the rest of the world is how it has so quickly become another battle in, in the culture wars, right? The fact that this has all become refracted through the kind of the typical partisan schism is, I think, a hindrance to dealing constructively with the virus. Yeah, because ultimately people with the virus will travel around the country and spread it no matter what their partisan lean is. There's one sort of little chink of light here, isn't there, which is that the, there's a big discrepancy between the caseloads in America and, and the death rate. Broadly, if you compare with Europe, caseloads are really high, and the death rate looks comparatively low. Do you think that's likely to last, which would be great news? Or do you think that we're likely to see in the next couple of weeks that death rate really tick up? I think, unfortunately, that discrepancy is, is going to narrow a bit, and there are a couple of reasons for it. One is that much of the increase in cases is due to the fact that America is now testing at a higher rate than it was before. But what happens is when there are big explosions in, in cases is that the deaths that they cause don't materialize for a couple of weeks, and they might take some time before they're reported. So I think that there's, there's going to be a pretty large lag between when you see spikes of COVID-19 and when you see deaths that ensue from them. There is also reason to think that the death rate this time around might be a little bit lower. There is some evidence to suggest that younger people are increasingly those who are getting detected with the virus. There's also some evidence that hospitals have gotten a bit better at treating severe cases of, of COVID-19, which might keep the death rate down for a bit. But the fact of the matter is that when you have secondary waves that are resulting in 50,000 or so people a day getting the, the virus, you can't really keep deaths at their current level, which is something like 1,000 a day you know, for much longer. So Charlotte, the last time we had a podcast about coronavirus, which I think was the end of May, the federal government had clearly messed up. But the numbers in America didn't look so different from Western Europe. In fact, the death rate was quite a lot lower. And a lot of the things that people are criticizing the federal government for rightly, like the scramble over PPE, lack of coordination there, the failures in testing, a lot of those things were problems that you'd also seen in other countries. I mean, really everywhere apart from Germany and the countries in Asia that went through SARS, you know, messed this thing up in the first wave. Right now, things look very different to that, don't they? I mean, America is exceptional on COVID-19 in all the wrong ways. Yes. You see coronavirus cases as of this week rising in 43 states and in D.C. That's pretty remarkable. I think one thing, and Idris put it well, talking about the politics of this, but in America, you have this weird blend that you've seen from the White House as well as from different governors. And... It's this strange blend of cynicism, doing the thing that's politically expedient, coupled with delusional optimism. And the result, as I see it, is pretty irresponsible leadership. And in Texas, if you look there, Governor Abbott, as we discussed, began reopening earlier in the spring. He since has scaled back a bit as the number of cases has continued to rise. So he's canceled elective surgeries in more than 100 counties to try to keep hospital beds available for people who have covid closing bars again limiting restaurant capacity to 
it's been a really choppy response, particularly in response to schools. So Abbott said that schools could remain virtual for three weeks from their start dates, but also that schools were required to offer five-day-a-week in-person instruction to anyone who wanted it. If schools stayed virtual longer than three weeks, they would lose state funding. Now he's offering a little bit more flexibility as that very optimistic and bullying plan seems like it might not be sound. But all of this is a nightmare. I mean, it's a nightmare for schools that are trying to plan. It's a nightmare for parents, for hospitals who are trying to treat patients. In the western part of the state where I've spent some time in the oil patch out there, rural hospitals don't really have the capacity to treat patients. And then when patients in West Texas come to hospitals in Midland and in Odessa, they're turned away. So you see this playing out, that that weird blend of leadership, which is both kind of cynical because you want to do the politically expedient thing and uh, optimistic about the course that COVID will take, playing out in an inevitable and very, very messy way in different parts of the country. John, let's talk about the politics of this and how the political dynamic works. I mean, if you take a governor like Greg Abbott in Texas, he has his own right flank within the Texas Republican Party, which he has to please, which has been very pro reopening as soon as possible, right? And then he has his responsibilities to Texans to keep them safe. And then mixed into all of that, you have the messages coming from the federal government, from Donald Trump, but not just Donald Trump, you know, from the vice president as well, which, to my mind, at least push Greg Abbott, Ron DeSantis and others, you know, in the direction of reopening early when they when they ought not to be. Is that fair, do you think? I think that's fair. The messaging from the White House has been harmful and inconsistent. If you go back to the beginning of the of the pandemic, You've had messages from the president shift from it's all going to just go away to we need to shut down the economy to crush the virus to now we need to reopen the economy and get everything back up and it's going to be fine to near total silence. And what that means is you have governors like Greg Abbott in Texas who constantly have to defend themselves from their right flank by pushing toward openness and indifference to the virus. Brian Kemp in Georgia, as cases spiked there, passed an ordinance saying that cities could not mandate mask wearing, which seems to me... There's no justification for it. There's no public health justification for it. It's just pure politics. And that kind of politics, unfortunately, is getting people killed. And some people might say, well, the president isn't actually making the decisions on lockdowns in these states. But I guess the point is that he creates the political weather. Correct. So that if you're a Republican governor, you have to be a lot more attentive to what he's saying and to what your right flank is saying. Yes. And that constrains your ability to act. Yes, you have to either follow his dictates or face trouble from the right flank, or you can do what Larry Hogan did and just break with him completely. Yeah, Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, you also seen Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, make a, a similar calculation. To give Trump his due, there are very difficult decisions to be made. When you have a full lockdown, of course, that has an enormous effect on the economy and on people's livelihoods. Everyone wants to get their kids in school so that life can return to normal and so that children can um, get the very, very real benefits of being in school in terms of their mental health, in terms of their educational progress on any number of metrics. The question is how to balance that against the imperative to limit the spread of the virus. The problem with Trump is that he's not shown that he's balancing those different priorities in a fact-based way. And the responsibility for dealing with COVID, of course, does rest with states, but this is a disease that is transmitted through individuals and through individual behavior. And Trump has a huge impact on influencing people's behavior. 
He also has an impact in terms of coordinating different branches within the federal government, coordinating activities with states. I'm not sure that he's done that particularly well. And then independent of Trump, there have been failures within the broader federal government, which we'll get to. The CDC's failures, I don't think we can blame entirely on Trump. Those had to do with failures within that agency. So there have been failures at different levels of government, including within the White House and outside it. Okay, well, in a moment, we'll hear from Robert Redfield, the director of the CDC. But first, the usual reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, you are missing out. You'll get the best offer on a new subscription by heading to economist.com slash 2020 election pod. In the US section this week, we look back on the Supreme Court's eventful term, profile former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, the first senator to back Donald Trump back in 2016, whose political career hit the buffers this week after falling out with the president. That link for a special rate on a new subscription is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. You'll find it in the notes for this episode on your podcast app. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, is regarded as the world's most effective public health agency. But it's come in for harsh criticism for failing to control the coronavirus outbreak, the very thing it was designed to do. I've been speaking to the director of the CDC, Dr. Robert Redfield. The full interview is on The Economist Asks podcast, but there are a few key moments from it that I wanted us to discuss here. This is what Dr. Redfield had to say about the reasons for the secondary surge we've seen in the US in recent weeks. With this new surge, it really shifted in that it's about a decade and a half younger. It's younger individuals. Obviously, its impact in terms of mortality has changed substantially. So it's a different situation. I'm not exactly sure why. I'm not as clear if the overall burden of new infections in the United States is that dramatically different. I am very clear that our recognition of them is far greater. And I am clear that in certain states like Florida, Arizona, Texas, and California, the amount of infections are clearly much higher than they were in the spring. From my perspective, it looks like some of the states, Florida, Texas, Arizona, a few others in the Sun Belt, got impatient with the lockdowns, locked down at a time when they didn't have all that many cases, started to let people go to bars and go to restaurants and gather together. And then we're really opening up as cases were taking off against the advice of all public health officials. Is that the case, Dr. Redfield? You know, John, I, I don't think so. I mean, and, and this is why. When the outbreak started in the Northeast, particularly New York, and then northern New Jersey, then Connecticut and Boston. It was sequential. When we look back at what happened in the South right now, something happened between June 12th and June 16th. All of these now hotspots all became activated and then move into exponential growth. It wasn't sequential. And we can't relate it to those jurisdictions that were closed or open. A number of them had been reopened for five, six weeks before this happened. So I don't think that's the explanation. You must have a hunch. What do you think happened? That's very specific. My hunch, my hunch, and, you know, CDC is science-based, data-driven. We're not really an opinion organization. We don't really, as an agency, get into the hunches. But I do think the hypothesis that I would have right now is that 
It wasn't really Memorial Day weekend, but it was Memorial Day week or so, where a number of individuals, particularly from some of the previous northern, uh, northeastern groups, decided to go on their Memorial Day vacation. And if you look at where a lot of these hotspots started, whether it's Charleston or Florida or Galveston, the the southern individuals who had been spared from this outbreak really weren't embracing the social distancing strategies that we had recommended because they really hadn't had an outbreak. So I think it's more likely related to migration of people from areas of what were now declining transmission that went on vacation for, say, May 26th through the beginning of June. And then before we know it, we had seeded many parts of the South. John, what did you make of that? His point about the different paces of opening and closing struck me as really interesting. That hypothesis that you had Southern states under pressure to shut down because of high infection rates in the dense Northeast in March and April, that got them tired of the shutdowns and they opened right when they should have been closing. That's a very interesting hypothesis. It suggests that the southern states could have stayed open for longer and then shut down later. But I wonder whether that wouldn't have resulted in more cases later. Anyway, all of this hindsight is very easy to do. The fact is we're in a massive epidemic in which America has more cases than anyone else. And the question is, what do we do about it now? What it made me wonder was whether America really ought to have had a national lockdown. I mean, I think it seemed sensible at the time to lock down the states where the infection was rife. But in a country where people can just travel around so easily, that's only really going to be a short-term strategy for containment, isn't it? Yeah, I I think in hindsight, that sounds sensible. At the time, it would have been so hard just given America's massive geography. it, It does seem like that would have been a politically impossible decision to take. One of the things that I think was interesting, and you heard it a bit in the tension that he was describing between the CDC's guidance and different governors and how they chose to respond to that guidance, is that there have been these different instances where the CDC issues guidance and then states ignore it, or the CDC issues guidance and Trump actively contradicts it. There is a huge disparity between the opinions of different leaders within America, within the federal government, between the federal agencies and and state governors that I think helps explain that American exceptionalism that you heard at the beginning of the podcast that Idris described. There are just so many manifestations of it that we've seen since March, and the result is, is pretty disastrous. Yeah, Dr. Redfield's really interesting on the inconsistencies in the messaging. Let's listen to a bit more of what he had to say. I think there's more consistency now, say, than there was two months ago because of some of the lack of knowledge of this virus in February and early March about asymptomatic transmission, pre-symptomatic transmission. Once we understood asymptomatic transmission was real, we were pretty aggressive in promoting face coverings for the American public. And the other thing I would say, and I'd be remiss if I didn't, I wish that we had an over-invested, over-prepared public health system in this country that had the full core capabilities of data-data analytics, multiple laboratory resilience, a huge public health workforce. When this came, it actually came into an under-invested data system, an under-invested public health laboratory uh, system, and an under-invested public health workforce in our nation. And I think we paid a price because of it. Dr. Redfield, I think when people like us criticise 
inconsistency of messaging from the federal government. It's not really the CDC that we're criticizing. I mean, as far as I can see, America's the only country in the West where mask wearing has become a politicized issue. And I think, you know, that's because of messaging from the White House. Vice President Pence said in a briefing on reopening schools, this is a quote, we don't want CDC guidance to be a reason why people don't reopen their schools. We're going to respect whatever decisions are made on campuses. So you've got you know, the vice president instructing schools not to listen too much to what the CDC says. You know, you've got the White House putting out talking points, trying to undermine Dr. Fauci, which I imagine must have some impact on the way that public health officials in America are prepared to to talk. I mean, that that's the stuff that people look at and, and worry about, not, not so much that the CDC maybe didn't emphasize the importance of face coverings early enough. I think we continue to move forward. There's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see, obviously, the vice president, the president, you know, now wearing face coverings. But I do think it's important. I, your point, well taken. Uh, we don't need to be politicizing these public health interventions. You know, face coverings isn't a political issue. It's a public health issue. The truth is the president and vice president, you know, are tested every day and everybody around them are tested. So from a public health point of view, there was science-based data that they wouldn't necessarily benefit from wearing a mask or people around them. That said, I think they became aware more and more how important their example was of wearing a face covering because while they may not need to wear one from public health, they help us get that consistency of messaging out that this is something we want the American public to do. If everybody in my nation would just put on a face covering whenever they're in public or around other individuals where they can't maintain social distancing, and we did that for four, six, eight, 10, 12 weeks, the outbreak in America would be over. We'd get it under control. We'd bring it to its knees. Charlotte, what did you make of that? I was quite struck by Dr. Redfield's insistence that with mask wearing and social distancing, this outbreak, which looks so bad at the moment, could be brought under control relatively quickly. I hope he's right. That would obviously be a huge win for the people who are trying to get back to work, students trying to go back to school. That would that would be huge. I think that among the things that really stuck out to me from the interview is when he was talking about how America has been ill-equipped to date to deal with this from an investment standpoint, that we haven't invested in the technology systems or the public health workforce to deal with the outbreak. And certainly that has been borne out in reporting from the New York Times and others that there wasn't a good way to share data between hospitals and public health officials and the CDC, that you had faxes and spreadsheets attached to emails, phone calls, et cetera, as the way to share data. And of course, there's the new news from the White House that uh, data gathering will leap over the CDC and go straight to the Department of Health with some outcry about that. So I'm glad to hear his optimism that if people could just get their act together and wear masks, that we might have a huge impact. But I remain concerned, one, that people won't wear the masks, and two, that you continue to see some problems coming up, particularly with data sharing, which will be crucial to getting the situation under control, that you have transparent and streamlined sharing of data around cases and mortality. I would just make the point that if Dr. Redfield's 
argument is true and we could knock this infection out in, you know, six, eight, 10 weeks by wearing masks, it wouldn't just be a win for all of us who want to get our kids back to school and go back to work. It'd be a win for President Trump, too. All he would have to do is sort of appear in masks every so often and say, look, nobody likes to wear this, but we can do it. We'll do it together. It'll be two months of sort of mask wearing a distance, and then we'll be in much better shape. That would shape the narrative heading into election day, and it would do him a great deal of good. Now, I don't know if the sort of anti-mask messaging has gone so far that it might not make a difference, but it just baffles me that this is an issue that the president would try to politicize when it seems to me only upside for him in promoting the mask wearing message. All right, thanks both. One of the other things Dr. Redfield talked about in the interview was the race to get a vaccine. He's fairly optimistic that a vaccine will be available by the end of the year. We'll find out how a possible new vaccine might boost the president's chances of re-election in just a moment. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. While the reputation of the scientists at the CDC has taken a hit during the pandemic, American ingenuity and federal dollars have been deployed in full force in the hunt for a COVID vaccine. Natasha Loder is The Economist's health policy editor. She's been writing about the latest research for this week's issue. When I spoke to her, I wanted to know whether President Trump was right to be so certain about the imminent arrival of a vaccine. I actually think that he could be. The reasons for thinking that are that vaccine development has been going along at a fair clip. The government has been spraying large amounts of cash at the effort to produce vaccines, including in helping companies to ramp up mass manufacturing. What we don't know, of course, is whether all these vaccines that are being pursued actually work. But we've seen positive signs from quite a few of them. And because the government's investing in such a wide range of vaccines, I think it's reasonable to expect that by the end of the year, perhaps even sooner than that, that you would not only get a positive result from a vaccine trial, but you would then be in a position to start handing it out because you would have some stocks of that vaccine. And this all comes under the umbrella of something that the White House refers to as Operation Warp Speed. Can you tell us a bit more about Operation Warp Speed? Essentially, it's an effort to spend a lot of cash that's being run by Health and Human Services and the Department of Defence. Initially, the goal was to deliver 300 million doses of vaccine by January 2021. But it also is buying into something called an antibody therapy as well. It's a drug, but it's also a sort of halfway house to a vaccine because it can also be used as a preventative. So Warp Speed's both vaccines and treatments. How does the federal government's approach compare to what's being done in Europe or elsewhere? Well, they've been much faster in stumping up a lot of cash. It's also taken quite an aggressive approach. America has made it quite clear that it wants to secure vaccines and drugs for its own use, whereas other countries, including the European Commission, have formed coalitions to supply vaccines. They work with the WHO. 
outside of the US, there's certainly a more collaborative approach, although it's certainly true to say that quite a few governments, including Britain's, for example, have made moves to secure supplies of certain drugs and vaccines for their own national use. But America certainly has made most of the aggressive moves. So, Natasha, there is an America first aspect to this. Do you think America could or or should have acted differently? I mean, every government has to put its own citizens first, of course. But was there a way for America to pursue a vaccine and pursue treatments in a way that might perhaps benefit other countries as well more quickly? Or, Or do you think this approach is actually perfectly reasonable? No, I think without any question of a doubt, it could have done far more to collaborate with other countries. I mean, if you think about vaccines, the most effective way of deploying limited supplies of vaccines in the early months of availability are going to be to make sure that countries have supplies for their highest risk people. What's a really irrational thing to do is for a few countries like Britain and America to pursue a strategy of vaccinating pretty much everyone as soon as possible. It doesn't help you if you want to trade with countries who are still struggling, if you want to travel to those countries. Natasha, just to clarify, you said that there is a decent chance that a vaccine might be available by the end of the year. How about by the beginning of November, which is obviously a date that the president has at the front of his mind? Yes, I think it's absolutely possible. What you have to bear in mind is that we have three promising candidates, all of which could have results from efficacy trials by September. And there's a little bit of time that would be necessary in order for the FDA to look at that data and decide whether to grant an emergency approval. But should that happen, there should be tens, if not hundreds of millions of doses of these vaccines. You could end up in a position where On the campaign trail, shortly before his election, Mr. Trump is in a position of being able to point to a new vaccine. He's certainly got a good shot at a shot, if you like. And then also, there's this drug produced by a firm called Regeneron, which the US has just bought a large supply of. Results are coming in, I would think, by the end of the August, start of September, something like that. And if that is a promising drug as well, the government again will be able to say, we've bought up this drug, we have this drug, we've made it available. So, Charlotte, it's a week before the presidential election. Donald Trump's holding a big rally. He's able to announce that the federal government has its hands on a COVID vaccine. How does that affect things? I think there's no doubt that if the president got this COVID situation under control, that it would be a big win for him. The question is whether it's enough to overcome what has turned out to be a pretty yawning gap between him and Joe Biden, at least at the moment. I think that gap will inevitably narrow somewhat, largely as as Joe Biden gets out there and starts making speeches and so forth, and Republicans have more meat to work with in opposition ads. But yeah, undoubtedly, it would be a big win for Donald Trump. I suspect it wouldn't be quite enough to ensure him an electoral victory, but it would be a big win for Trump and also, of course, for the rest of us who are keen to get things back to normal. Yeah, I'm going to agree with that. The gap is really big and voters who have turned against Trump, I think, are turning against him not just because he hasn't handled COVID well, but because of the exhausting four years of his presidency. And I think doing one thing right at the end is not going to be enough to erase everything else. Well, let's 
cross our fingers and hope that this surge, this peak of cases that we're seeing now declines over the next month or so, and then America is able to keep COVID case levels relatively low. Does anyone come out of this well politically? It's hard to say. Andrew Cuomo sort of had a moment, and he has a very approachable style, and he does well with voters. He has these you know, televised briefings in which he is clear and emotive. On the other hand, it looks like a lot of people died who maybe didn't have to die had he approached his nursing home policy differently early on. I think that Fasman is right, that there are different instances of people who have performed well. The same can be said of some other governors in the Northeast, not just Andrew Cuomo, but in Massachusetts, New Hampshire. But I think that if you really closely scrutinize any official, there's a lot of stuff you can find to show how they made missteps along the way. And I think that in part is inevitable because the facts around the virus changed quickly. People didn't really know what they were dealing with. So Donald Trump, as we've seen in the past week, members of the administration have gone back through Dr. Fauci's early statements to point out some of his mistakes in communications around the virus. You can look at some of Governor Cuomo's actions at the beginning of New York's outbreak that didn't look so wise in retrospect. So I think it's really hard to walk away from this pandemic and be a true hero. Everyone has made mistakes inevitably, but some of those mistakes have been much larger than others. Yeah, I think Charlotte proposes a really good metric for determining who did well in this, and that is who made the most sensible decisions possible with the information they had at the time. And by that metric, I think Phil Murphy in New Jersey looks pretty good. Ned Lamont in Connecticut looks pretty good. Greg Abbott in Texas and Brian Kemp don't because Brian Kemp just extended the order banning cities from opposing mask ordinances. That's just terrible policy. It's terrible policy with what we know now. As Charlotte points out, it's a new virus, so mistakes were inevitable. But who did the best they could with what they knew? I think there's another metric which I would judge people less harshly early on in this epidemic when it hit America. I mean, early on, as you say, John Fassman, we knew less about how it spread. You know, every country more or less seemed to struggle with similar problems over over PPE, over lockdowns, over how early to call them. I think what's pretty unforgivable is that a couple of months after the peak in New York, governors and people in the White House should still be making the same mistakes. I think that's absolutely true. And you both said much more eloquently the point that I was getting at. I think that test that Fassman laid out is a very good one. And if you think through the electoral politics of this, it doesn't seem like you'd really want to alienate senior voters who are particularly susceptible to the virus and who come to the polls very reliably. It doesn't seem like you'd want to galvanize the black voters who vote very reliably for Democrats. So I think politically, this is just a tough one for Republicans come November. Okay, on that note of agreement between you both, I think it's time to sow some discord. It's quiz time. This week, the quiz relates to the CDC. In March 2007, The Economist used CDC data to map US states by the prevalence of obesity. The states with the heftiest residents are all in the South. The accompanying article says that Southern cuisine, with its, quote, generous doses of fat, sugar and salt, is partly to blame. Many great Southern dishes are born of that, quote, fusion of European, African and Native American traditions, the piece continues. It lists three ingredients for Louisiana gumbo, one for each of those traditions. Charlotte, I don't mean to cast aspersions on your cooking, but I would suggest this might be a good quiz 
to follow Fasman's lead. Um, John or Charlotte, name the three ingredients that, that go into a gumbo. Uh, it's onions, celery, and bell peppers is the trinity. Wow, impressive. That was said with such authority. I am clearly wrong because I've never made gumbo and I know for a fact that John has, but I would have put sausage in there. I thought that sausage was a requirement for gumbo. Onion, celery, and pepper is called the holy trinity of Louisiana cooking. But the other things that go into gumbo, you have oil and flour to make a roux, you have seafood. In some places you have filet powder. It's, it's infinitely variable. Charlotte, you get a point for sausage. John Fasman, you haven't got any points yet, despite listing several hundred ingredients in a gumbo, because what I was after <laughs> were the ingredients that made a nod to those three traditions. So there's a European one, an African one, and a Native American one. So you can have another go. Fine. On the theory that sausage gets a point, I'd say that's probably European. The Native American one is, is filet, which is pounded sassafras leaves. And I would say the African one has to be rice, right? You are such a show-off with your sassafras leaves. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Do you get a point for sassafras leaves? I have to say, I didn't award you a point earlier for filet because I had no idea what that was, but it turns out you're right about that. The one you've missed, and I'm delighted that you've missed something, is okra or okra. Ah, uh, okay. Do you have your okra with your boursin? I'm feeling, I'm feeling mocked. Um, John, <laughs> I'm just trying to turn the tables a bit, having lost yet again. <laughs> You got a point. I think you should. That's actually one. That's one all, despite John Fasman's in-depth it's knowledge tight. of the gumbo. You've you've excelled yourself. But we're not done yet, Charlotte. John Edge of the Southern Food Alliance told our correspondent in that piece that Southern food need not be fatty. He suggested cooking greens in olive oil instead of which more traditional fat? Uh, you cook greens down in in lard or in ham hock broth. Sure. I was going to just say lard, but ham hock broth sounds much fancier. Yeah, the article says bacon dripping, so I think you're both right. His mother apparently kept it in a coffee can by the stove. So I think that's two all. Congratulations to both of you. I would have failed that quiz horribly. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks, John. That's all from us. If you like the podcast, please tell everyone and leave a rating and a review in the usual places. We're very grateful to those of you who've done so already. There's plenty more to savour from Economist Radio. Full interview with the CDC director, Robert Redfield, is on the Economist Asks podcast. Check out our business podcast, Money Talks, which won gold at the British Podcast Awards this week. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. <laughs>